Today's Bible reading is from John chapter 5, verse 31 to 47. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Therefore, is another, there is another who testifies in my fa- not. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony for me is valid. You have sent John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp and burned and gave light. You chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have a testimony weightier than that of John. For very work that the Father has given to, to me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one who is sent. You diligently study the scriptures, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from from men, but I know that you that you do not have the love of the love of god in your hearts i have come in my father's name and you do not accept me but if someone comes in his own name you will accept him how can you believe if you accept praise from one another yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the one and only god but do not think that i will accuse you before the father Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Hello? Hey, there we are. Thanks, Sean. It's good. Thanks for reading that, Sean. That was Bit of a volume in that. Speaking of volume. <laughs> you tell me what I need to do. <laughs> I'm going to put this over here. Far away from me. <laughs> uh, hello. Um, I'm Brendan. I am a student in training for ministry here, in addition to being a youth leader. Um, I'm happy to be bringing the word tonight. Uh, We've been working our way through the Gospel of John, um, and we're at John 5 now. And so I've chosen this passage to talk us through. So if you will uh, kindly bow your heads with me, we'll pray, and then we'll start looking at God's Word. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study your Word and in it the character of your Son. Please open our hearts to learn more from it and open your Word's mysteries to our hearts. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our faith rests entirely on the person of Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be Christian. It is to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he died to take away the sins of the world and rose again to give us new life. And the mission and responsibility that comes with that belief is to share with others that same knowledge about Jesus. 
And if you've ever tried to do just that, share the knowledge of who Jesus is, you may have noticed that occasionally it accrues some resistance. So here in the latter part of John chapter 5, we have people who are looking Jesus in the eyes and not believing in him. And as they do, he tells them about the things that are testifying to who he is right before their eyes. The things that speaking in favor of his claim to be the son of God. And since the followers of Jesus that have accepted this claim are this church, are all Christians around the world, it behooves us to take a look at how he deals with people who don't believe in him. So it's worth looking to see for ourselves. So earlier in this chapter, in chapter 5, Christ went to the healing pool at Bethesda, and there he healed a man who was crippled for 38 years. Now, we don't know exactly how the healing pools worked, if they worked at all. The description that we get in the chapter is something like a shrine to the Greek god Asclepius, which is a fun word. Um, But Asclepius was the Greek god of healing. And the cult of Asclepius set up these shrines called Asclepia, Asclepia, where they'd practice their healing craft, a kind of a local medical clinic with a pagan flavor to it. If that's what it was, and the people who came to the healing pools looking for healing came somewhat late to the party, because that cult of Asclepius had its heyday hundreds of years before when the Greeks were still in control of that region. There wasn't anyone there now, none of the attendants of this cultic temple. If the followers of that cult were still floating around, they weren't there. The passage tells us, prior to the passage that we've read, the immediate context tells us that the man that Jesus met, who he was going to heal, didn't have anyone to help him into the water where he thought he'd be healed. So if there was healing happening, it wasn't being done by people. They just expected it to sort of happen in the pool. So did the pool have some kind of miraculous healing properties? passage doesn't say exactly. Apparently there were rumors that an angel would invisibly fly over the surface of the water and create a ripple. And when they saw that ripple, the first person to dive into the pool got healed. If that's really how it worked, it seems kind of mean. Like guys like this 38 years worth of not being able to walk is going to struggle to get past anyone else, and that's indeed the problem that he was having. He is too sick to get healed. It's like, it'd be like going to a third world village and then offering a, a sandwich to whoever can do the first set of 20 jumping jacks. It's not exactly fair. But it might not have had healing powers at all. It looks like hundreds of years ago, this was a medical clinic of the Greek gods. And now understaffed, due to budget cuts and a change of empires. The people there are still clinging to a superstitious hope there'll be some healing left somewhere at the bottom of the barrel. So it's a modern equivalent to maybe an empty doctor's surgery with a little ring for service bell on the counter and every now and then a stiff breeze blows through and jingles that bell and everyone stands bolt upright and rushes to reception and hopes there'll be someone there to serve them. If that looks like a vain and foolish image, it is. These hurt and desperate folks were the kind that Jesus spent a lot of time hanging out with. But anyway, at these pools, Jesus met a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And he gave that man a miraculous command to be healed that did everything the pools couldn't possibly do for him. Jesus said, get up, and he got up. Just like that. Praise God. 
Then later on, Jesus finds this guy at the temple, and apparently he's a dobber, because he snitched on the Lord Jesus and his Sabbath healing. And the Jews present began accusing him of healing on the Sabbath, which is true. He was performing his miraculous healings on the Sabbath. The fact that so many folks in the Bible seem to be more annoyed by Christ's business hours than by how astounding the mysteries of his power is, is an enduring mystery for us. But anyway, he calls out his detractors for the rest of chapter 5. This is him responding to the people who were saying, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. First, he speaks of his authority to act, based on the fact that God doesn't stop working on the Sabbath, and neither should his son. And then we come to the passage that Sean read for us, the passage we've just heard about the witnesses to who Christ really is, about the things God has offered in evidence to the identity of his son. Now, this is a pivotal moment in the gospel. This is Jesus in Jerusalem defending his claim to be the son of God that he was. Verse 18 of this chapter says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this is it. This is the reason why they will eventually hang Jesus on the cross. The defense he gives to this miracle is that he's equal to God. And so that he doesn't need to play by the Sabbath rules. And they'll kill him for it later. And while he's giving them all the provocation they'll need to turn murderously against him, he tells them about the things that testify to who he is. He tells them that they have ample reason to believe his claim and that they can't go on not believing and then later on claim that they didn't know. It was true then and it's true now and so it's worth our exploring. What reasons did the first century Jews have to believe that Jesus was who he said he was? What does Jesus say? In verse 31, he says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. But there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Jesus is talking about his father who divinely dispatched him and who was present with him. And he'll go on to explain that further later in the passage. But in this line... That, that if I testify about myself, my testimony isn't true, that bears some extra exploring. That's Jesus stopping to appeal to his audience and their knowledge of the Scriptures. He knows that they know the Scriptures, and after all, he knows they intend to kill him. And Deuteronomy 17.16 says, On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death but not on the testimony of one witness can someone be put to death. So Christ takes this encounter and turns it into a kind of a courtroom drama, with the witnesses coming out to speak in his defense against the Jews, accusing him of a capital offense. Christ is not saying, I'm lying to you when I'm talking about myself alone. He's saying that you don't need just to believe my claim. There are more to back me up. God has established witnesses for me. So he brings in his witnesses in his defense, and the first is John the Baptist. And back in John chapter 1, 
The temple, the Jews in the temple, the Pharisees, were very intrigued by John the Baptist and what he was doing. They sent a delegation to go and see what his deal was. They asked him if he's the Messiah, and he quotes the book of Isaiah in response. He says, no, I am the voice in the wilderness crying, make straight the way for the Lord. And then the day after he says that, Jesus shows up. So Jesus says, you have sent to John, and he has testified the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you might be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a while to enjoy his light. Jesus is almost kind of flippant here. He says, I don't need merely to rely on this human testimony. I've got divine testimony coming right after this. If you've ever watched Law and Order or you dig that kind of courtroom drama, it has a feel to it like when the, the lawyer asks a question they know will be objected to, and then they immediately withdraw it just to be glib. I'd like to call the attention to the testimony of John the Baptist. Objection, Your Honor! That's the testimony of a human and can't be admitted. Withdrawn. Nothing further for this witness. He doesn't need that testimony, but he puts it there for them to think about in case they'll be persuaded by it. And he mentions that, I mentioned this, that you might be saved. That they might be saved. He is on trial, and he is concerned that they might be saved. He has begun to turn the scenario around. He is forewarning them that he is going to be found innocent and that there will be a trial on the charge of this malicious prosecution and if they know what's good for them, they'll try and keep right out of it. So he gives them an extra way out. If all they need is a man to trust, they already trusted John the Baptist for a while and he's testified rightly about who Jesus was. They can believe him. After that, Jesus starts calling his star witnesses to deliver their devastating testimony. I have a testimony weightier than that of John. For the works of the Father that the Father has given me to finish, the very works I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. The works that the Father gave him to finish and the very works that he is doing. Now he draws his crowd's attention back to the miracles that started this conversation. He's giving sight to the blind, he's healing the lame, he's raising the dead. These are amazing miracles, they are incredible things. Jesus claims that these testify as a witness on his behalf, that he was indeed sent by the Father. No one can do this kind of thing unless the Father empowers him to do so. Now, Jesus has a very distinct style of how he uses his miracles. He uses incredible actions to draw attention to his teaching. The miracles themselves are rarely the point. The miracles draw people in, draw in their attention by being these fantastic events that validate the teaching that he's giving. So these divine miracles show up around his divine teaching. And this is important. It can change the way that we look at Jesus' miracles, sir. Bear with me in this hypothetical for a moment. If you could heal folks with a touch of your hands, what would you do? If you've ever read the Gospels of Jesus Christ before, and you have even a little bit of imagination, you've probably asked yourself this question once before. 
probably go straight to a hospital and start healing people. Right? Maybe ride around in an ambulance to show up the paramedics. You'd want to get as much use out of that healing as possible because we're wired to feel compassion for the suffering. And showing kindness and love is something that Scripture and the Spirit of God impacts on our hearts and for us is a part of the teaching of our culture. So when Jesus goes to the healing pool that we mentioned, we have no reason to believe that he was not able to heal everyone there. But we're not told about a mass healing at this pool. We're told about one man who was healed. So why doesn't he heal everyone? Because that healing miracle didn't come just out of compassion for the suffering. Jesus' compassionate mission is infinitely greater. He came to reveal himself so that people might understand that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believe in him for the forgiveness of sins and to gain eternal life. His healing ministry served his teaching ministry. His physical healings are like signs of his authority. They hang on his wall like a doctorate saying that he is approved to the spiritual healing. The Jews here get so hung up on the miracle that they fail to recognize that they are receiving at that moment the divine teaching that miracle is meant to validate. These miracles testify that Jesus is the Son of God and they have no excuse to overlook that. Then comes Jesus' final witness. He doesn't rely on human testimony. They might fail to see the significance of his miracles. But Jesus indicts his Jewish accusers using the same scriptures that rule their lives and that they are using to try to indict him. It says in verse 38, sorry, verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. These Jews, these Israelites, these people of God, whose national identity has for generations and centuries been based on their cherished belief, their cherished understanding, that they, as a people, heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai when God spoke to Moses. These people who read the scriptures and believe they understand God's word are the ones Jesus says to, you have never heard his voice. You have never seen his form and his word doesn't dwell in you because you don't believe me. The very scriptures testify about him. And I don't want to give you a thousand scriptural cross-references you'll have to look up later. But the scriptures that Jesus was referring to, the ones that the Jews themselves studied, predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, a descendant of Abraham and David, that he would be called a Nazarene, that he would bring light to the Galilee, that there will be someone that came immediately before him, crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. These things are happening right in front of them, and they're overlooking them. It's an incredible amount of prophecy, all of which Jesus was fulfilling and validating by the power of his miracles. And the folks that studied these scriptures their whole lives refused to believe it. 
And this must be clear, not just were not convinced, but refused to believe. If you look at the evidence before you and you decide, that's not enough, I'm not convinced, then you're not convinced. If you look at the evidence before you and decide you're going to reject it even though there is enough, that is refusing to believe. And it's hard to imagine human beings being confronted with these prophecies and these miracles and these things before their very eyes. Refusing to accept them as true, but it's just such a broken human thing to do. Example. I want to read to you something unbelievable which I came across. I find it kind of funny. I hope you will too. Not in too mean of a way. It's a paragraph from the website of the Flat Earth Society. If you're unfamiliar with the Flat Earth Society, they are exactly what they sound like. And this statement of what they believe on their website tells it very clearly. <clears throat> the Flat Earth Society has dedicated itself to starting science afresh from the ground up, to begin to see the world without bias and assumption. Experiment and experience has shown that the Earth is decidedly flat. Time and time again through test, trial and experiment, it has been shown that the Earth is not the whirling globe of popular credulity, but an extended plane of time's immaterial. Throughout the years, it has become the duty of each Flat Earth Society member to meet the common round earther in the open, avowed and unyielding rebellion, to declare that his reign of error and confusion is over and that henceforth, like a falling dynasty, he must shrink and disappear leaving the throne in the kingdom of science and philosophy to those awakening intellects whose numbers are constantly increasing and whose march is rapid and irresistible for the soldiers of truth and reason. It is possible to be so devoted to refusing to believe something that no evidence is sufficient to change your mind. For the flat earthers, every moon landing, every satellite photo, every cruise around the world only proves how far-reaching and insidious the cover-up is. Evidence to the contrary becomes evidence of how wicked and deceptive the opponents are. And these Jews will say that Jesus is a servant of the devil and kill him long before they are willing to admit he is the son of God despite all the evidence staring them in the face. Despite the fact that he fulfills all the prophecies, they just show that he's very dedicated at pretending. And because they refuse to believe, they're going to go ahead and unwittingly help him fulfill the rest of the prophecies about him, about being spat on, hated by his countrymen, whipped and crucified. So at this point, Jesus has summoned his witnesses and rest his case. As far as he's concerned, he's off the hook, but he's not done. He's flipped the trial around, and now his accusers are the ones facing the questions. He says, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. 
How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Remember, these Jews are furious at Jesus, not for teaching or performing miracles, but for claiming he speaks with the authority of God. If he'd said the same stuff, but had claimed it was just his idea rather than coming from the authority of God, he might have skated by. They might have liked talking to him. They may have even come to seek his approval. But they can't accept his claims because he's putting them in God's name. And if they're not true because of that, then they must be false. And if they're false, it must be the greatest blasphemy they can conceive of. So they've made themselves incapable of accepting who Jesus is. And so Jesus finishes mounting his own case against them using their own witness as their downfall. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Moses, the lawgiver, who penned the laws about the Sabbath, started this whole discussion. Moses, on whom your hopes are set, he is the one who will accuse them. It's the very law they are clinging to that will destroy them in the final day because they can't uphold it. It reveals their sin and they refuse to believe in the Savior and deliver it promised. Everything Moses wrote in the law was meant to prepare for the Lord Jesus' coming. The sacrifices laid out in Leviticus are meant to point forward to the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus Christ. All the commandments laid down in Exodus and Deuteronomy are there to reveal the goodness of God and the sinfulness of man. And the reason we get such a clear account of the sin of the first Adam in Genesis is so that we can have perspective for the second Adam, Jesus, when he comes and lives a sinless life. So John the Baptist and the works of Jesus and all the scriptures are all powerful witnesses for Jesus as the saving son of God. His audience has no excuse for their self-deception. And they've had enough laid out in front of them to know and believe and they have refused to. But what about us? We live 2,000 years removed from those miracles and from John the Baptist. What do we 21st century Gentiles have to learn from this stinging rebuke offered to 1st century Jews? Well, our world does not have John the Baptist, but we have a room full of Baptists right here. Some of whom are even named John. And not just Baptists, but evangelical Christians of many stripes, Jane the Presbyterian, Jack the Methodist, John the Chinese Protestant. It is our purpose, our great commission, as followers of Jesus Christ, to go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to be witnesses to the Son of God and to provide testimony for the saving work he did on the cross. But like Jesus did not rely on the words of men, it's not just us telling about Jesus that God uses to witness to his Son today. We do not have Jesus walking around physically curing the sick and validating his authority in that way. But the greatest miracle he performed was to take away the sins of those who followed him by his death and resurrection. 
The works he began have not stopped and will not stop until after he's come again. When we begin our lives as wretched sinners and then are changed by the work of Jesus Christ and that shines through our lives, that is a powerful testimony to Jesus as the Son of God. In fact, when we mature as believers and we encourage one another, we often encourage one another to write down how Jesus has impacted their lives. Typically when a baptism is going to happen and we go ahead and call it our testimony. Because that miraculous redemption testifies about Jesus Christ. And as for the scriptures, we have more inspired scripture than Jesus' generation did. They had enough guidance to know that Jesus was the promised son of God and they had no excuse But we have this explicit neon sign flashing indication of the New Testament that Jesus is the Son of God, that only he saves, that there is no other way, and that he will come again. So our generation has less than no excuse. Richard Dawkins, microbiologist and atheist icon, was once asked, what will you say if after you die you discover you were wrong and God is real, and you meet him after all. Mr. Dawkins thought and then replied that he would ask, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? I imagine he won't be the only one asking that, but when he does, I suspect he'll get a reply he won't much enjoy. Perhaps the Almighty will look back at him and say, Why did I take such pains to hide myself? In the person of my son, I took incredible pain and death to reveal myself. And I had it committed forever in immortal words that would never be removed from the earth. And I raised generation after generation of followers whose sole calling in life was to testify about the fact that I'm here and that I work miraculously in their lives and turn the weakest, worst people in the world into the most righteous followers of me so that there could be no mistaking who was involved. Their words and lives are testimonies to the life of my son, Jesus Christ. Why did you take such pains to hide your eyes from me? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a living witness, both in how you invite others to know the Savior and how you live a life changed to validate those promises. And we've been equipped by the scriptures both to testify actively and to live our lives more Christ-like. You are the witnesses that God chooses to use to show his son to the world today. It's our duty and our privilege to reflect his light to the world. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have a lot of thinking to do. Because you can ignore the scriptures that tell us all how we are sinners and separated from God. And how his son came to die and to take away our sins and promise us life after death. And you can ignore the fact that millions upon millions of others around the world have turned to Jesus and are turning to him each day. You may even be able to ignore the way that those people who are everywhere in life on display strive to live their lives better and consistently have some success. Even the worst of them, especially the worst of them, 
You can refuse to believe those things, but when the world goes dark and one day the universe is rolled up like a scroll, you will stand before God. And you can't ask him why he hid himself. He's threaded his name in every stitch of your life. If you don't know Jesus, but you want to know more about him, you're in the right place. Look around you, find the friendliest face, and ask them to tell you what he's done in their life. It can be me, it can be a friend, it can be a random person sitting around you, but just don't leave here tonight without investigating that testimony to the Son of God. Let's pray. Father God, you sent your son to teach the world, to show who he was by his actions and death and your power and mercy as he rose again and offered new life to a sinful world. Help us do credit to you as witnesses, both in our speech when called to testify in that way and in our lives, as a world looks on to see if we live the way we talk. We know we can only live righteously by your power, we know that's the point. And we ask you to help us do it every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'd like to stand, we're going to sing the, uh, the song Alive.